that we would wander. What a absolute cosmic treason that I would leave the God who has loved me. And yet in my treachery and in my treason, he does not turn away. He comes and finds us. He pursues us. He pursued us to a cross and he pursues us all the way to the end. We wander and he does not. We wander and he pursues. Uh, So you may have heard we had a marriage conference this weekend. And so hopefully you would not have the idea, well, if it's a marriage sermon, I can tune out if I don't fit that category. And really hope you don't think I can tune out because my marriage is so awesome, I couldn't possibly learn another thing about that topic. Marriage is a story that God has told from the beginning that is not about you finding someone to complete you. It's a picture that God has given us about him and his relationship to us. So, does it have anything to say to you in singleness? Yes. Does it have anything to say to you in widowhood? Yes. Does it have anything to say to you in marriages that are great or struggling? Yes. And so, I do want to repeat just a couple of truths. By the way, I wrote my sermon prior to it, so any overlap, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I don't need to cite the source, like this was, this was written in advance, but, uh, so a couple of things that, that kind of that I would take away that that will bridge me into the sermon that I also want to help connect some dots on in your life. So um, one of the, the the conference title was called A Taste of Eden. Now you don't get Eden on this earth and so if you think marriage is going to return you to paradise maybe even long enough to realize that's not going to quite married long enough that's not going to quite happen. But if we're supposed to taste little bits of heaven in our marriage, I, uh, I, the, the question I thought of was, well, when I, when I taste my marriage, when I think about my marriage, what taste comes to mind? Or maybe this, like what aftertaste does it leave as I dwell on the kind of relationship I'm a part of, right? The, the second statement that I thought was really helpful is the reason you exist in this world today is because you are a visible representation of the invisible God. And that's true if you're single, that's true if you're married, that's true whatever relationship status you're a part of. You are a visible representation of the invisible God. And when you marry another person, you then, not better, but maybe fuller or clearer, Together, your marriage is meant to be a visible representation of the invisible God. And so the question becomes, whether it is your life or your marriage, what does your life display? What does your marriage display? Does it display, here's what God is like in his glory and his truth and his beauty and his righteousness and his love and his compassion and his patience? Or does it say, this is what I am like and this is what I want and this is how I should be seen? What, what do people see? What does your marriage put on display? And then the, and we're going somewhere, don't worry. And then the second part of the conference talked about the heart. I do what I do because 
because I want what I want. Hopefully that's not new to you. Like hopefully a lot of this is not new to you. You have heard it in different contexts. But I do what I do, and I, so I want what I want. And so why does, my, why does my marriage taste the way it does today? Maybe even put it this way. Why does my life taste the way it does today? Why does my marriage display what it is displaying to, to the world and to each other what it does? Because you are an accumulation of your wants worked out in your actions, and you are now living in the aftertaste of the wants and the doing and the speaking and the conversations and the thoughts and thoughtlessnesses that have made up the relationship you're a part of. And so it tastes the way it tastes because you've done what you've done together and towards each other and not towards each other because you've wanted what you've wanted towards each other and not towards each other. And that's true of your life. It's true of your life. It's also true in your marriage. And so what now? That's what I wanted to answer. Kind of leaving that, that, that conference, I wanted to answer, okay, what do you do with that? Because hopefully, again, those truths aren't super new. But within the marriage relationship, what do you do when you start to realize there are things I don't like the way they taste about our relationship or about my life? There's parts of my life that I just realized they don't show off God very well. And, and hopefully your desire is more and more conformed that I want Jesus on display, I want Jesus on display, I want Jesus on display. And hopefully that's what you want in your life. And that's what you want in the binding of your life with another. And so like, what do I do when I begin to realize I don't like what it's showing? It doesn't match Jesus very well. What do I do when I don't like the taste? And so I'm going to give you four things. Uh, first, kind of bridging off the weekend you have a pattern or a theme of sin that is part of your life. You have a pattern or a theme of sin that is part of your life. Marriage is just a really good context to force it out of you. But you have it. You have it single. You have it engaged. You have it married. You have it any status of life that you're a part of. A pattern or theme of sin. And so the first thing you can do is identify your pattern of sin. Why do you do what you do? Because you want something. And so, if Chris, and I'll tell on myself, like, does the Bible say I should live with a good reputation towards outsiders? Yes. So, I want to have a good reputation in people's eyes, and in a different way, I want to have a good reputation in Amy's eyes. Really, I want her to just think I'm super amazing as a husband, and that our marriage is super amazing, and that there's zero problems whatsoever. But I also want that in all of my relationships. Now, the easy part of that is, I mean, I, I do want to try to live my life in a way that there is respect and that there is, um, you know, that you would receive influence from me, like that, that you do think well of my reputation, but what's the problem? When I begin to live for that, then I can obsessively dwell when you would dare to question my suggestion slash demand of how things should happen in any given situation. Do you not know I'm an expert? Do you not know I've thought through it? Do you not respect me? What's my pattern of sin? I want to be admired. I want to be respected. I, I want to be looked at a certain way. And I find that. And unfortunately, fortunately, it doesn't happen a lot out in the world because there's just, you know, I, I have a certain reputation and it's not close enough. <laughs> but what if my kids, poor souls that they are, would dare to question my sovereign rule over our home. Do you think I respond well to such things? 
So the kids, I can get angry at and have to do a lot of repenting. I can get angry at and I can yell. Now, thankfully in God's grace, that doesn't happen towards Amy much. And so Amy would dare to think, I'm not the most amazing husband ever. How could she imagine such a world? But if she does, like, and she doesn't say it, she just hints at it by not completely affirming perfectly everything about me all the time when I want her to and not when I don't. So I'll just take my ball and go home. I'll go pout a little bit until she comes and just reassures how great I am. Right? And so we have a pattern of sin. Maybe yours is. Right? That, that I so desperately need my, my husband's approval that I live for his affirmation. I live, for his, uh, I live to worship him and serve him because then he'll see how great I am and I will be accepted and I will be loved and I will be full and complete. Or maybe it's like I, things just have to be safe. They have to be safe. And if there's one outlet that doesn't have a little plastic thing in it, like my world falls apart. We, we got to go out to Walmart at like 1 a.m. because the plot has to be covered. If a GMO, whatever that is, slips into my kid's food, the horror. You know they serve animal crackers over there. I'm just warning you. I don't know, but I think they have some of that stuff in them. So their safety, like if they don't have the most rigorous, healthy diet, if they don't have the most pure, organic food. Now look, nothing wrong with being healthy. I'm not making, fine. The problem is when I live for that, right? And I'm going to control my world so that no sickness and no harm and no injury and, and no hurt can ever come into my kids' lives. We all have a pattern of sin. We all have a theme. And so it may play out in your closest relationships. It may play out when there's authorities in your life that, that, that push against something in you where you're not measuring up, you're not performing, or an authority in your life dares to put something on your paper besides A+, you're the best student I've ever had, you're amazing, and it plays out. But this, the, the place it plays out the most is the relationship that's closest to you. It plays out in your marriage, and so what is yours? What is the theme that plays behind your interactions with others but then really gets close the closer the relationship gets? Identify your pattern of sin. Secondly, I'm going to use a curse word here. Repent. Repent towards the Lord. Now, it's not a curse word except for to us who don't like the topic. And, and so, repent towards the Lord. The, the first step back is the first step back, and the first step back is turning around to go to the right direction. And so I repent before the Lord when that theme pops out in my life. But here's the thing. I don't just repent, and hopefully it's like, you know, but before the Lord, God, I, I, I was angry. I, I unleashed harsh words towards my kids. I, I pouted and withdrew instead of pressing in to solve a problem with my wife. And so, yes, confess that. But what about back here? God, I want to be admired and respected more than I want you to be admired and respected. Forgive me of that. You are a God who is, dwells in unapproachable light. You're a God who is marked by the, the splendor of holiness. You are a God who is beautiful in his sanctuary. And I want to be admired? I know enough about me that I should want better than that. God, forgive me for that. And yes, the words, and yes, the actions, and yet the th yes, the thoughtlessness, and the yes, when I withdraw, and yes, when I attack. Repentance towards God. 
And here's something, like, okay, I could do that. In the big stuff, like, I'm not going to worry about the, the big stuff, right? Here's something that if you want to have relationships that are successful um, and marriages that are successful, then you're going to have to enter into the humility of repenting towards the person that you have offended. You're going to have to open yourself up to the exposure of, I'm going to give them ammunition against me at this point because I'm going to tell them how my heart has longed and wanted something that was for my glory and not God's. And I'm going to have to tell them, yeah, I really did screw up and it wasn't your fault, it was mine. And I'm really going to have to tell them that these words were evil. And, and she could absolutely bring that back against me the next time we fight. But I want God's cleansing and redeeming forgiveness. I want my relationship to be restored. And so I repent towards the person as well. When was the last time that you and your spouse looked at each other, that you looked at your spouse, and you didn't say, I'm sorry. You confessed that you sinned against that person. And you asked them to forgive you. If that's never happened or that's happened re really rarely, does that correspond to the number of times that you have sinned against them in little and big ways? I'm guessing those numbers are way off of each other, right? Way off. And so if you're single, if you're engaged, if you're married, I want to know my sin patterns. And the better you are at fighting it now in community, the better you'll be equipped to like put your life next to somebody in a pressure cooker. Right, and so repent before the Lord, repent before others, repent before your spouse. Third one, enlist your spouse's help. Ask him to help you. Now, the Keller quote that we've said and that, that also that he said throughout the weekend is the greatest desire for any single one of us is to be completely exposed to another person. Completely known, completely known, all the junk inside, all the junk outside and to be loved and accepted by that person when they see what they see. The greatest fear that we all have is that when somebody sees the real me, I'll be rejected for it. When somebody sees the real me, they'll turn away and they will not be able to look. I will be rejected, I will not be accepted, I will not be loved if they really knew me. Does God really know you better than yourself? He knows the words that you're about to say, not even the ones you said yet. He knows the thoughts that are about to hit your heart while they're still way off in the distance. Does God turn away? No. If we're going to create a marriage we want to live in, if we're going to create relationships and community we want to live in, then we are enlisting help to say, I want you to see it, and I want you to see all of it, and I want to invite you to love me still. And I want to see you. And I want to see all of it. And I'm committed to loving you still. Marriage is the covenant bond that makes that possible. Now, yes, in community, you can also do that. And so enlist help. Ask them to see it. Ask them to point you in the right direction. Ask them to, to see, like, I am trying to see the admiration and glory of Jesus because I'm so sucked into wanting mine. Just please help me see it. Enlist them, and enlist help, enlist help from microgroups. If you are at a place where like this is terrifying and you know for a fact it's not gonna work, wrong word, because Jesus is stronger. 
if you're in a place in your marriage where you can't do this yet, you find people that are a little beyond you, that you trust, that, that walk with Jesus, and go sit with them and start saying, look, here's a little of us. Please love us. Here's a little bit of us. Help. We need to see Jesus. We need to have these conversations better. And then the last one, number four. So we're going to know our pattern of sin so that we can repent intelligently to the Lord, to each other, confessing well and forgiving well, known and loved, sin and forgiveness. We're going to enlist our spouse as a help. We're teammates to fight the things that war against our souls. We're teammates to fight against what wars in her soul. And then the last one, practice um, that problem-solving meeting. So if you're at the conference in, in the back, there was steps towards a problem-solving conversation. If you would like that for, you know, just for yourself or to have with friends or microgroups, we can get that to you. If you weren't at the conference, we can get that to you. But it's taking 20 minutes a week or more, or, or, or a couple of times a week, but keep it at 20 minutes. A husband will open up in prayer over his family a husband will initiate, I would like to encourage you because I see the Lord doing this in your life. A wife works fine, look, I see the Lord doing this in your life. So we're encouraging each other. We're not just stepping in. Man, I have been waiting on this. How do I make sure you hear it all? Right? So you're, you're doing that. Then you begin to start with you. Look, here's the themes I see in my life this week. Here's the way that's busted out and hurt our relationship. Here's the ways I've sinned against you. Here's the way I can, I can see the patterns of my heart coming out, and I did it to the kids, and I did it to you, and here's the conversation we had, and you're confessing that. And then that frees your wife to do the same thing. And then, the most terrifying question you could ever ask, what else do you see in me? What do you see that I'm not seeing? And they can ask the same. And then we pray together, reminding each other of the cross, and we move on through the week. So, that's what I would do as a process to start from the truths of the conference to daily life. I would find out what my sin pattern is. I would grow in my ability to repent all the way deeply and all the way to the surface. I would practice confession and repentance and seeking forgiveness from my spouse. Um, I would enlist my spouse to help me because I want to grow and she's committed to my growth and I want her to grow and I'm committed to her growth. And then lastly, I would institute a regular, weekly's probably a good place to start because I'm sure it can get a little hot at first. That's okay. It is okay. This is the good kind of heat. It's the good kind of confrontation. It's, it's the commitment. We're going to close the door and maybe it didn't work well, so good. Next, next meeting we have something to talk about. I sinned against you when we started, because I started getting defensive when you would dare say something was wrong with me. This is the good kind of heat because it's the kind of heat that grows you and on the other side of it produces intimacy. All right, long introduction. We're going to get as far as we get in the sermon. I'm not particularly concerned by getting through all of it, but... I did want to help us walk that out, and hopefully you can see elements of that that would be helpful if you're single and helpful if you're engaged, that would equip you for life, and hopefully you can see a way to take a conference and bring it into the everyday life of your marriage. So that was my goal to kind of kick off. So you see a title here, Every Marriage on Mission. What has been our theme all of January? Every member on mission. And so did I just want to fit the theme, or does marriage really have anything to do with mission? 
Well, let's see, right? Um, let's pray, and then we'll go through some of this. So, Father, there's probably very few areas where we have to say we are so desperately needy of help than where we are relationally. God, where we need help because we're in singleness, we don't want. Help us to want Jesus more than anything. We're in marriages, Father. That we, we, we don't know how we broke them and we don't know how to fix them. And, and we're scared to just take it out of autopilot because of the stuff that might come up. We need help. And we rejoice that Jesus Christ is stronger than our marriage problems. We rejoice that Jesus Christ is stronger than the besetting sins that cling so closely to our lives. We rejoice because Jesus is stronger than any circumstance that can come against our life and marriage. And so God, draw near. God, be merciful. We need you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So is every marriage on mission a twist of words, or is it actually accurate to the Bible? So let's, let's walk it through and let's see. I would say it this way. In the beginning, there was a marriage. In the beginning, there was a wedding. Genesis chapter 2. It takes us that long to get to the first marriage. And from there on, what is marriage in the Bible? It is a picture of God pursuing a people for himself. So the entire Old Testament and the entire history of humanity apart from God is this dynamic. A faithful husband who is pursuing a people. A faithful husband who forms a people for himself. A faithful husband who redeems a people for himself. A faithful husband who rescues and rescues and rescues and rescues a people for himself. A faithful husband that keeps pursuing, keeps pressing in, keeps going after a people. That's the Old Testament. That is the world apart from God. That is missions to the ends of the earth. It is a faithful husband pursuing a people for himself. But that's only one side of the equation, isn't it? The history of humanity, the history of God's people is a history of a bride who is perpetually unfaithful who commits adultery after adultery after adultery after adultery after adultery against the faithful, loving husband who has provided everything for her security, for her deliverance, for her redemption, for her care, for her nourishing, who has given everything for this to be perfect, and yet she commits adultery after adultery. Do you see that in your life? Is that the story of your life? If you don't see it, you haven't looked deep enough. It's the history of a people who will love anything else but God. It's a history of a people who will love anyone else but God. Isn't that Romans 1? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the eternally blessed creator. So what is the history of the Bible? A faithful husband pursuing and pursuing and pursuing. A bride who runs and runs and runs and runs. Marriage is a picture of the mission of God. 
And then, after he had done everything externally to create the most beautiful and perfect relationship that there ever could possibly be, he's given pillars of fire, he's given clouds, he's given manna and food, he's given a land of prosperity to dwell securely from enemies. He's given everything. And yet there's unfaithfulness. What more could he do? Could become flesh and dwell among us and walk in the flesh we walk in on the sin-cursed earth we walk in, and he would do it. And you know how the Bible describes the husband who's pursuing a bride all the way to the earth? Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he walks through the world, creating life out of death, and wholeness out of brokenness, and sight out of blindness, and light into darkness. And what does he get for his trouble? Hatred, mocking, shaming, questioning, over and over and over again, a faithful husband who would gather them to himself, like putting a mother hen would put her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't take it. And for our unfaithfulness, they slaughtered him on a cross for our sins, for our unfaithfulness, for our perpetual adultery and idolatry. It was a mission that went to the cross to win a people, to win a bride. And so we still have a faithful husband pursuing all the way to death and resurrection. But what about the people? What the external fixing of circumstances and security and prosperity could not do, the cross, the death and resurrection did. Think of how it's pictured. You were buried with Christ in baptism. All of that unfaithfulness of your old heart and your old self have been put to death. By the work of Jesus, not by your work. And what comes back out? A new man, a new image, a new self in righteousness and holiness. What the external couldn't fix, the cross fixes is it gives us a new heart of faithfulness. A new heart and a new nature of righteousness. Marriage has a mission. And how is it pictured? Christ and the church. Marriage. And then, in the beginning, there's a marriage. In the end, there is a marriage. Thank you for being with me. The Bible closes with a wedding feast, not of a man and a woman, but of that pursuing husband and his bride from every people, tribe, tongue, nation, and language, formed around his throne, dressed in the finest of white linens, of the righteousness he gave them and the righteousness they lived out. Every marriage is a mission. Every marriage puts on display the glory and the goodness and the greatness of our God, some better than others, right? So, yes, there's some points. Let's go through a couple of them and just pick up a few of those points. So, well, I have to read them. Marriage pictures a relationship with Jesus. Creation, marriage exists to fill the earth with displays of God. Marriage exists to fill the earth with displays of God. I want to ask a question at each phase and answer it. So question one, how should it be? That's what creation tells us. When you read, it only lasts two chapters. When you read the first two chapters and then it's over, you get the answer to the question, how should it be? What should it be like? And this is true. What should my life be like? And this is true of marriage. What should my marriage be like? And again, not stealing this. I already had it written down. 
How should it be? How should things be in my life? How should things be in my marriage? Here's my answer. We should image forth God. We should image forth God. We should glorify is the word we use. Look, here's what God is like. Look, here is his compassion and patience. Look, here is his absolute righteousness and justice. Look, here is his patient pursuit. Look at God. Here's what he's like. As you see me, you see a reflection of God. I'm not God. Don't mix the two. But I'm meant to be an image or a display of here's what God is like in the world. And then, how do I do that? As I keep answering the question, how should things be? My life is visible representation of the invisible God. My life images. Here's what God is like. And then for the glory of God, I am entrusted with an area of this world to rule over. Dominion is the word of Genesis chapter one. I'm entrusted with an area to rule over. And when I rule over something, what, is, what images God the best? For his glory, this flourishes as best as it possibly can in the wilderness that is the world, right? And so I rule over an area for it to flourish. And then I shape my part of the world to maximize its usefulness and benefit for as many people as possible. All right, does that all make sense? If no, you can take care of it. Okay. Image God, glorify God by ruling well in my little area for it to flourish so that then I shape my part of the world to be useful for people. My home to display God and be useful and beneficial people. My home so that it flourishes. My workplace. You think, does, does my little job, now I don't know if you work here, please, I'm not talking about you. I am an admissions counselor on the lowest rung of Georgia Southern. Surely my job has nothing to do with God's glory, and it doesn't own much of the world, so surely that doesn't mean me and my mundane little job, whatever mundane little job you have. They're all mundane, by the way. So let's think about that. What if I go to work for the glory of God, and then I open up a file, and there's a soul in that file, and that soul is applying to Georgia Southern University to take steps that open up the, the career path and the credentials and the life that is ahead of them. And that little file that I stamp approved into, welcome. And that mundane little job of paper pushing for the glory of God, I have been part of making beneficial and useful this part of the world for them. And if you don't believe me, if you've applied to college, uh, if you're in that age or if your parent, as parents were in that place and you don't hear anything and you don't hear anything and you don't hear anything and you call and you can't get anybody on the phone, would it matter that somebody glorified God and wanted to release this opportunity? Yes, right? And you can do that with any job you hold. So that's your purpose. What about marriage? What about marriage? Why is it here? To image God more fully. If you see in Genesis chapter 1, Gendered humanity is required. Gendered humanity is required. Male and female is required to give a fuller picture of the greatness and vastness of the God who cannot possibly be comprehended. Could he have done it? Androgynous, yes. Could he have done it with 99 genders? Yes. What does it take to say, here is more of what God is like than if they were just men or just some other thing? God 
made them male and female because it took male and female to give a fuller picture of the greatness and glory and beauty and diversity and bigness of what God is like. Gendered humanity in relationship then becomes the expression, the visible representation of the invisible God. What's it supposed to be like when you see us? There's intimacy, not distance, because there's a God who draws near. When you see us, there is, there is loving kindness and loyalty and faithfulness because we serve a God who is loving kindness and faithful. When, when, when you see us, you don't see separation and distance and pointing fingers because we have a God that welcomes us in. We don't have a God who's doing that. And so we do that. But what can happen in marriage that can't happen anywhere else at creation because it gets bad quickly. Little image bearers, we are fruitful and multiply and we fill the earth with image bearers. Here, this is what God is like. Here, this is what God is like. Here, this is what God is like. We fill the earth, we fruitful and multiply. We raise up image bearers because we want more displays of God to fill every corner of God's creation. Why is marriage on mission? That fast forwards a little bit because we want spiritual children, restored image bearers, to fill the earth with a redeemed display. Here's what God is like. A redeemed display. Here's what it's like to have a redeemer, not just a creator. A redeemed display. Here, let me offer you this redemption that has been offered to me. Marriage has a mission to image God. And then if you see the rest of the words there, dominion, you rule over an area. Do you rule over area here or husbands and wives? Do you rule over an area to exert privilege? And to get the best out of that area for yourself. No, what did we hear at the conference? My life for you is the choreography of heaven. And so when I rule an area, it is let me give my life, skills, ability, leadership, and rulership to create life in that area. Not to suck it dry for myself. Right? And so I exercise dominion that says subdue the earth. Do you see that? Make it useful. Make it beneficial for as many people as possible. That's why you exist. Did it stay that way? No. The second one. The fall mars the image by introducing unfaithfulness. I will just point you to the book of Hosea because we won't go through it. It opens up, and this is what Hosea is about. God says to the prophet Hosea, go take a prostitute to be your wife and have children from a prostitute. Why? It's about a picture, right? It's about a picture. It's not about the wedding. It's about a picture. Why? Because my people are so unfaithful to me. My people play the prostitute. And so marriage is a picture. It is a picture of a faithful husband. Oh, but it's not a picture of a faithful people. And yet... There's a God who, if you read the book of Hosea, keeps going after the one who's unfaithful, keeps going after the adulterer, keeps going after the idolater. And in the end, as Trey read earlier, I'll betroth you to me and I will erase every idol's name out of your mouth that won't exist anymore. I will betroth you to me and I will destroy war and arrows and bows and destructive things and you'll dwell in safety. I cannot give my family safety no matter how organic I am. I can't do it. 
But I can go to, a Lord, to the Lord who says my people will be secure. Maybe not secure in this life, but secured for eternity. I can go to the God who does that. Right? The fall mars the image because it's unfaithfulness and unfaithfulness and unfaithfulness, but it does not change the husband's pursuit. You will know me. Doesn't change the pursuit. And so, third, we'll go to third. We gotta go. Here we go. Redemption. The picture is restored as marriage shows off Christ in the church. The picture is restored as marriage shows off Christ in the church. So the question here is, does Jesus make any difference? And if so, what difference does Jesus make? Now, Jesus doesn't come along and say, look, I'm doing it. You can do it too. I'm imaging God. Why don't you try harder? What does Jesus do? He walks on the earth and he perfectly images the invisible God. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We looked at him and we saw God, who was God. He imaged God perfectly. He shaped the world around him so that the desert bloomed everywhere he went. The lame walked. The blind saw. Death got reversed. But God had been doing that all along. And he still had an unfaithful people. He couldn't stop with a life that gave life in the desert. He had to go to the eternal God of life facing death to undo death for everybody else. He imaged God perfectly. He ruled the world around them so that life came out. And then he said, my life for you. My life for everyone. And now, what about for us? What difference does Jesus make? The image of God is redeemed in me. It's restored. It wasn't gone. It just got so covered in dust that you couldn't see it anymore. The image of God has been redeemed in me. So I can now display, I can now image God in my life because, because of God's work, because of God's work, not mine. I can image God in my life and now I can go about planting redemption in life everywhere I live for the flourishing of my home and my neighborhood and my workplace for them, not me. Exercising all the resources, all the gifts, all the leadership, all that I possess so that there is richest, richness for others, not richness consumed for me. And so in Ephesians 5, you see this play out. And you get to wives, submit to your husbands. You're like, woo, woo, stop, right? Unless you're the husband. And then you get to wives, submit, and you're like, yep, that's what I've been talking about all along. Woman, if you would serve me better, our marriage would be fine. And here's the Bible to prove it. Well, so what's the problem? I'm going to go over into what the Bible says to the wife and put it as a demand on her. And I'm going to avoid what the Bible says to me and not take it as a responsibility for myself. Do you see that? Everywhere in the Bible, when godly leadership is exercised, it is exercised not as a privilege to enrich the leader, but as a responsibility to enrich the follower. My life for my subjects. My life for my spouse. My life and our life as a family for my kids. That's always been the pattern. My life as king for the good of my subjects, the nation. And when that happens, flourishing and prosperity 
and, and idols are toppled and economies boom. And when that is reversed, people hide themselves when the wicked rule. That's the theme of the Old Testament. And so, husbands, we are creating this environment where I receive on myself the responsibility to love like I'm hanging on a cross every day. Do you see that? Love your wife the way Christ loved the church and died on a cross for her. That's the responsibility, right? It's not the privilege. It's kind of an ugly privilege for this. Washing with water of the word that I take seriously a responsibility, no matter what my knowledge or skill level is, to be part of the growth process of my life and family, my wife and family. You know what an easy way to start with that is? I, I don't know anything. I don't, she may know more than you. Do you know how to get in a car at nine, let's call it 12, and Get directions to Fletcher Memorial Baptist Church. That's a great place to start. You're around a community of believers discussing the word. If you don't know, like at 720 North Main Street, just put it in that little device on the, on the screen of your car, and it will just take you there. Right? And if you've got a really cool car, it'll take you there, and you don't have to drive. So, right? Start there. We're going to be in church every week. But honey, I want to travel. Part of my responsibility is that we flourish in the Lord. We're going to be in church. So we start there. I'm going to be in a microgroup. I'm going to learn. I'm going to open my Bible when they give me a reading plan because I'm going to learn because I want to grow in my ability to help you flourish in the word. No, I cannot grow my wife. No, I can't redeem my wife. None of that. But I can be part of making sure the environment is that growth and the word washing. Okay. Love like you're dying on a cross. We die daily for the sake of those we love. I, I, um, Seek spiritual growth. I want to create the best environment for that. And then the third thing we see in the passage, the way I love to take care of me and be comfortable, and, and maybe you've noticed like we keep it cold in here, because I die up here. It's so hot, and it's about me, not you. Some of y'all are hot too, though, so it's for you too. The way I think about me, it says nourish and cherish your spouse like she's your own flesh. So you want to tell your wife to submit? Yeah, God does. Well, what does God tell you? You love like you're on a cross all the time. You create the environment for her to flourish spiritually. And you make sure that you're putting as much thought into her. Now, I need to qualify this here. My job isn't to make my wife's life easy or comfortable. My goal is to make my wife's life as much like Jesus as possible, Right? I'm seeking the best good of my spouse, not that middle step of convenience, right? But I'm thinking as much about her flourishing as I do about me being comfortable. So that's what redemption does. But what about this whole Jesus picture thing? Well, if you look at the end of the passage, one flesh, we're married. I'm talking to you about a mystery, I'm talking to you about Jesus and the church. This hadn't been about marriage at all. It's been about a picture 
of Jesus. It's been about a picture of a faithful, pursuing husband sharing redemption within that relationship. It's been about a faithful, pursuing husband and wife sharing redemption through that relationship. It's been about a faithful, pursuing husband creating the richest environment possible for his bride because that's what Jesus does. And I want to image God. That's why I exist. And it's about a wife who adores and loves to follow beside and support and partnership the man who is her husband. If our marriages are meant to be a visible representation of the invisible God, what do our marriages show? Would they see too much of us and our self-centeredness and our coldness and our distance and our alienation, or would they see a lot more of Jesus there's a last step that I'm not going to go through. You can, you can read it on your own there. The new creation, the picture becomes a reality as we are together with Jesus forever, perfectly displaying the glory of God for all eternity. The picture is completed. It begins with a wedding that starts a picture. It ends with a marriage supper of the Lamb that completes the picture. So the image I thought about back in the day when you had when you had a, like a rehearsal dinner and a wedding and whatever the thing after the wedding's called, reception, you would put out disposable cameras. Anybody remember those? Click, click, and then you would develop like 900 of these things. And it would be like blurry, blurry, what in the world? Yeah, that, that may work. Blurry, blurry, ah, there's a good one. And you'd go through 900 pictures. You'd get like two of them. There was no hashtag, you know, together forevers or whatever that you could just tag the wedding couple in. You had to develop these pictures, and most of them were too blurry to be useful at all. Then comes the cell phone with a camera. And they were awful back then. You don't know. Now, they were, like, they were better than blurry, but it was a digitized mess. And if you look at one now on like a real screen, you're like, whoa. That's what you antique fossils used to do? Yep, that's what we had. And then comes the iPhone. And you know what I hear every, you know, second or third model of iPhone that comes out? Dad, my camera, it sucks. I need the 12. Dad, my camera, it sucks. I need the 15. It's always the camera that requires the upgrade. Well, sometimes the battery, but always the camera that requires the upgrade. Why do I say that? Your marriage is meant to be a picture of Jesus. If you're single, your life is meant to be a picture. Here's what God is like. Here's the goodness and mercy and kindness and righteousness of a, of a God who loves and redeems. Your marriage is meant to be a picture of that. And so what resolution is the picture of your marriage putting out? Is it blurry so that people can't see God at all? Is it one of those early digitized images? Praise God, you're moving forward. That's awesome. Like, be encouraged by that. Like, it's one of those digitized versions where it's like, man, you can, you can kind of make something out there. Is it starting to move its way up in resolution and clarity, beauty, and usefulness to say, here's more and more and more what God is like. And what I would encourage you, if you're way back here and it's too blurry to tell anything, you are fully known and you're fully loved by God washed in the blood of Jesus, walk to another couple and say, know us. By the way, you're not fooling anyone, least of all each other. Here, know us. 
help us. Maybe you've started the process and you're moving along and you're, you're starting, there's a little bit of picture in your life and you're starting to see growth in your life or you're starting to see growth in your marriage. Awesome. Right, then continue that process. Use some of those steps that I gave you in the beginning. Start walking that out. Or here's the thing, and here's, here's where I think so many of us are. We're about iPhone 8. And iPhone 8's pretty good as a life because you see all the iPhones like one through seven. You see that click camera. We're doing pretty good. My life's doing pretty good. My marriage, it's, it's, it's eight. Is God ever done conforming us to God? Is God ever done to where the fullest amount of his glory is displayed in my life? No. Don't settle for a marriage that's good enough. And and, and one of the greatest danger points of your life is when you have these little monsters running around your house clamoring for your every attention. And the hardest thing in the world is to step away from that attention-consuming thing to say, I still want to know and love you while we do this crazy life with these crazy kids together. Or anywhere along the face, there's these danger points. Don't be okay with an iPhone 8 resolution of marriage displaying God. Don't stop until you get to heaven because Apple won't. We'll be at, like, at, we'll be at I-99. <laughs> They'll keep selling them to you. Man, let's just keep showing the world. Here's Jesus, version 5. Here's Jesus, version 10. Here's Jesus. He is better than we'll ever get to, so let's keep showing him off. That's my encouragement. A few practical things as we wrap up. One, I'm going to add to this, so write in your notes. What areas of my life, relationships, or marriage image God well? I want you to stop and encourage yourself sometimes. Like, yes, there is always more to go, and we're never going to get there. And, and the more we get there, the more we're farther away than we ever thought. What has God done in your life, though? What are some ways you're not like you used to be and you're more like him than you used to be? What are some ways your marriage isn't what it was when you started and the wheel, well, six months in and the wheel started falling off? Well, what has he done now? Like, what's there? Like, take time to be encouraged before you ask the question of your life, your relationships, and your marriage. What are some of the ways they muddy, they blur the picture of God? If we have a God who draws near, is distance ever okay? If we have a God who reconciles, who brings peace, not the absence of war, but peace, wholeness, is brokenness ever okay? Distance, running parallel tracks, but separate. Is that okay? If we have a God who is slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love, is a quick trigger with our spouse ever okay? We exist to image God. What areas are you doing it well? What areas are you doing it poorly? Second, what area of growth in your relationships, your life, your relationships, or marriage does God want to focus on first? And you're like, I have no clue. Let me help you out. If you find that there are some pressure points in your life, those pressure points are very likely a sovereign God putting a sign over where he wants to grow you. God, we're busy, busy, busy. We just can't do anything. And, and that comes up in every conversation. Alert, alert, alert. Is there something in your life that's saying, I need to be busy 
so people see how good I am? Is there something in your life that says, my kids need to be busy because if they see what a great athlete it is, as a parent, I succeeded. If they see how great my kids are in academics, they'll see how great a parent I am. Is there something to your busyness, something that requires you to be busy so that we will seem like we're good? Is there something to your busyness that would say there are priorities in my life that aren't showing off Jesus, but I enjoy and want to live with all these fun things that I do, right? And so what area does God want to focus on first? I would start with where are the pressure points? Where are the pressure points? I feel guilty, guilty, guilty all the time. Oh, God would so delight. If you were in Jesus, he would so delight to save you if you're not. He would so delight to take your guilt and nail it to the cross, right? And if you're a believer, he does not want the children he loved and died to make righteous, living perpetually under the weight of guilt and shame. Alert, alert, alert. You can walk out through there. What are the pressure points? What might that be pointing at? That God wants to, he wants to start reshaping that part of your life. He so graciously doesn't do it all at once. We'd panic and quit. There's areas. Last one from the conference. Um, so, again, if you weren't at the conference, we can give you this sheet. If you were there, you got a notebook. Hopefully it's not lost. There is handout number one in there that says, practical ways to love your husband. And you're like, I will if he does. Nope. Nope. You go to practical ways to love your husband, and you find a couple of those ways that would be meaningful for where y'all are as a couple. And because Jesus loves you, and you love Jesus, and regardless of him, hopefully because you want to, but regardless of him, because you have been so loved and redeemed in Jesus, you start practically putting those two ways into practice. I'm going to love him this way, love him this way, love now, guys, you're off the hook. There's a final handout. 50 questions to ask your wife. Right. Now, hopefully, if like, you need to go, you know, you need to go fix something in the house. I'll go fix it. Just don't make me talk. Right. So, husbands, here we go. 50 questions to ask your wife. She wants you to talk. She, you know, hire some dude to, to fix the thing, right? So, there are 50 questions, and some of them are just funny, get to know you, and some of them are very serious. And I would just encourage you to select two or three a week and ask those questions. Lead in starting a conversation beyond the schedule that you're keeping to have good conversations with your spouse about. So some, fine, like, yeah, favorite band or favorite, you know, concert or whatever. And some, right, we're going to be fully exposed. We're going to take the, we're going to, we're going to take the leap. What are some of your greatest joys in our marriage so far? What are some of your greatest disappointments? There's 50 questions. Ask some serious ones. Ask some gentle ones, right? Put these things into practice. Your marriage is a picture. What resolution are people seeing Jesus through it? Let's pray. So Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for a picture that is so clear about how you love us and win us and pursue us and do not relent that you don't give up when it's hard and you don't give up when we're dirty and you don't give up when we run away and you don't give up when we let our love slip to something else. You keep going. Oh, we want to receive that. We want to live in a confidence like that. We want to show that off to each other. But we so, so need your help to do it. So Father, would you please help? 
In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest problem you live with in your life is that second one. I want to image me. I want to live for my glory. And you may never have said that. You may never have thought in those terms. But if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you live for the glory of self. You live for the pleasure of self. You live for the comfort of self. You live for the admiration, respect, and status of self. The end of that path makes you alone. The end of that path leaves you rejected for eternity. The end of that path leaves you guilty with no one but you to deal with it. But there's a God who became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a God who went to a cross and died for our sins, died for our self-consumed life. And he gave his life for you. He would delight to welcome you. He would delight to welcome you. Come, let's pray together. Fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. Let us talk through this with you more. Marriage is about a mission for you. But maybe what you see as a believer is you see far too many ways your life displays you. Your life displays you and your values and your priorities. Your life displays what what makes you great. And you still see that showing up. Your life displays far too much selfishness than you would ever like to admit. Jesus is stronger than your self-centeredness. Jesus' redemption is greater than our straying. Come, confess. Come, open yourself again to the Lord. Come, let him wash you whiter than snow. And maybe this is a time you just want to pray with your spouse. Maybe it's a time you just want to pray for marriages. Maybe it's a time to make a commitment that I won't just do a conference. I want a life. I want a marriage that shows all these realities off. Let's stand and let's sing, and you respond how the Lord is leading you. So we get to talk of the redeeming goodness of Jesus for our lives, who's wed us, for our marriages, to be like him. But you know what you get to leave to do? You get to leave to be part of assembling the bride at the end of the age. For every tribe, tongue, nation, language, student, teacher, 
worker in Statesboro and beyond to be part of that great wedding at the end. You get to leave to the mission to offer the redemption you've received. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, send us. Here we are. As imperfect and fumbling as we are, we're yours, and that's what matters. We have Jesus, and that's everything. Grant us to go and offer him to a world in need, not us, him. In Jesus' name, amen.